Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Bulgaria didn't attract the same attention during the Cold War as other countries in Eastern Europe. It was never likely to be the cause of a hot war between the superpowers, and its leader Todor Zhivkov didn't attract the same notoriety as figures like the Albanian dictator Enver Hoxha. Yet Bulgaria has a fascinating history of its own, which sheds light on the experience of 20th century state socialism. Our guest today is Kristen Godsey. She's a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of several works about communism in Eastern Europe, and Bulgaria in particular. During the Cold War, Bulgaria arguably attracted less attention in the West than any other communist state in Eastern Europe, perhaps because it created fewer problems for the Soviet Union than any other state. Why do you think that was? Well, I think you have to go back pretty deep into history to understand the relationship between Bulgaria and Russia, even before the existence of the Soviet Union. So obviously, Bulgaria was under imperial domination of the Ottoman Empire for the better part of five centuries. And in the mid to late part of the 19th century, there were various national independence movements in Bulgaria, and the Russians were very good allies in this respect, the kind of Russian pan-Slavism and anti-Ottoman, obviously, sentiment, also imperial Russian designs on the Balkans, broadly speaking, and the Black Sea, meant that in 1878, during the Russo-Turkish War, the Russians were the ones who sort of helped Bulgaria get their independence. And I think that's really important, that there's a deep historical tie between the Bulgarians and the Russians. And that obviously was maintained after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Bulgaria was a very close ally of the Soviet Union. And unlike other countries, I think, where it was felt that the kind of communism that was, quote unquote, imposed upon them after 1945 was a form of Soviet imperialism, as you know, as it was in places like Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and certainly Poland, which had been partitioned in the 18th century, was not at all happy about having a, a sort of foreign political system, what they saw as a foreign political system being imposed upon them. Whereas I think in the Balkans, but also particularly in Bulgaria, there was just a much more natural homegrown affinity to socialism and communism. And there were active partisan detachments, communist detachments in Bulgaria during the Second World War. And so I do think that Bulgaria came into its communism much earlier than and much stronger than a lot of these other East European countries that fall into the Eastern Bloc after 1945, after the end of the Second World War. I just finished reading a wonderful book by the historian Maria Todorova called The Lost World of Socialists at Europe's Margins, Imagining Utopia. And it's all about, it's a very deep dive into the history of Bulgarian communism and Bulgarian communist idealism. And it's very clear that Bulgaria had a very strong leftist movement very early on. And part of that had to do with its sort of post-colonial status. And part of that had to do with the circulation of intellectuals. But I think that from the West's perspective during the Cold War, it was easy to 
look at a place like Hungary after the 1956 uprising or to look at Czechoslovakia after 1968 or certainly Poland with solidarity and see that there were possibilities for inroads to get these countries to sort of turn against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. I don't think anybody in the West seriously considered that Bulgaria was a potential weak spot in the Eastern Bloc. I think Bulgaria was always fairly fairly loyal to the Soviet Union, and there just really wasn't a very large domestic dissident movement against communism. To the extent that there was, it was very minor, it was very late, and it was very narrowly focused on environmental issues. Following on from your point there, going back to the early 20th century, as you said, Bulgaria did have an important socialist movement with figures like Blagoev, and it went on to develop one of the largest communist parties in the Balkans during the interwar period. How did that movement take shape and under what social and political conditions? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge question. You could almost teach a class on that. So, you know, just the, the real sort of bare bones is obviously Dmitry Blagojev is a very important figure. He's a, a you know, Bulgarian slash Macedonian. You can get into all sorts of weeds about his identity background there. But um, he did study in the Soviet Union. Or, no, sorry, he studied in Russia. Um, in, in St. Petersburg. And he comes back to Bulgaria, I believe, in 1885. Uh, at some point, he's kicked out. And he does begin what is then called the Bulgarian Socialist, Social Democratic Party. Now, as Maria Todorova describes so beautifully in her book, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, the leftist factionalism in the Balkans is extreme. You have the broads and the narrows. I mean, in a similar way that in, in, in Russia, you have the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. There are all sorts of different ideas about whether the social Democrats should be a movement or whether they should be a party, uh, how they should organize themselves, you know, what their objectives are. Obviously, is it parliamentary participation? Is it revolution? I mean, all of these questions are questions which are very familiar to anybody who knows the history of the left more broadly. But I think what's really interesting in, in, in the case of Bulgaria is that, you know, in a very short period of time, it has to deal with three quite horrendous wars. So the first Balkan War, the second Balkan War, and then the First World War. And unfortunately for Bulgaria, they they do quite well, you know, in a coalition in the first Balkan War, but then they're very unhappy with the division of Macedonia. And that leads to the second Balkan War, which leads to considerable territorial losses for Bulgaria. And then in the first world war, Bulgaria, you know, it's already smarting from the terms of the 1878 independence from the Ottoman Empire. So initially, Bulgaria was supposed to be much bigger than it became. Um, it, there was a treaty of, of San Stefano, which was the original treaty, which was going to give Bulgaria a massive territory that spanned from the Black Sea to the Adriatic uh, to the Aegean. And obviously the great powers were very worried about Russian expansionism in the Balkans. And so there's a second treaty called the Treaty of Berlin, which shrinks the size of Bulgaria considerably, much to the chagrin of the Bulgarians. And that historical backdrop and the sort of betrayal of uh, Bulgaria feels betrayed by Britain and France, and they are sort of given a, a German king, which they don't really want. And so there are always sort of huge 
underlying political issues in Bulgaria that come to the fore. You know, uh, Bulgaria is very unhappy about the the outcome, obviously, of, of the Second Balkan War and, and World War One, and. I think the interwar period, it's obviously a period of rising fascism throughout Europe. There is in Bulgaria, not only a strong communist and a strong social democratic movement, but there's also a very strong agrarian movement uh, under a guy called Alexander Stambuliski. And Stambuliski is assassinated. Uh, there's a military coup. And, you know, the, one of the big things about East European history that I think a lot of people forget is they imagine that these countries prior to the Second World War were democracies, and most of them were not democracies. In Bulgaria, they sort of had a, you know, a, a right-wing monarchy. But uh, the big thing is that in 1923, there is an uprising in Bulgaria and Bulgarian against this, you know, military regime that, that is, that's responsible for the assassination of Stambuliski. And the Bulgarians like to call it the first anti-fascist uprising in the world. They are very proud of the 1923 uprising. It was very ill-advised and it failed miserably and it led to the utter decimation of the leftist forces, many many people were arrested uh, and 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 sent into exile. And so, for the remainder, really, of of the interwar period, Bulgarian communism is really underground. But there is a lot of activity going on in Bulgaria, and also many of the people who received prison sentences are in the Soviet Union in the 30s. And so, and they're being trained often as, you know, getting military training and things like that. So it's a really interesting period. But Bulgaria, as you said, has a, a very large communist party. Uh, when it is suppressed, it goes underground. And then it comes back with a vengeance, really, during World War II uh, and, and the partisan struggle against what they call the monarcho-fascist Nazi-allied government. How did the fate of Bulgaria during the Second World War contrast with neighbours such as Yugoslavia or Greece? And how successful was that partisan movement that you mentioned launched by the Communist Party? So, yeah, I mean, this is the this is the um, topic of an entire book of mine, right? The left side of history. And the big thing, I think, is that Bulgaria signed the Tripartite Pact, right? So they were allied with... Nazi Germany, together with Hungary and Romania and, and obviously Italy. And what happens after the signing of the, the Tripartite Pact is the invasion of the Balkans, which means that the Bulgarians and the Romanians and the Hungarians, together with the Germans, obviously invade Yugoslavia and Greece. So the big difference between the partisan struggles in Yugoslavia and the partisan struggles in Greece and the partisan struggles in Bulgaria is that Greece and Yugoslavia were occupied and the population was utterly opposed to the occupation, obviously. And so they were very willing to help the partisans in the mountains. And the partisans in Yugoslavia are primarily communists. The partisans in Greece are a mixed bag. You have some communists, but you also have some nationalists. And that is becomes really important when we think about the Greek civil war later. In Bulgaria, almost all of the partisans are communists and a very large percentage of them. I mean, a significant percentage of them uh, out 
you know, out of proportion from their prisons of the population are Jewish because of the deportations of the Thracian and Macedonian Jews after the invasion of the Balkans. And so I would say that in the case of Yugoslavia, the partisan movement is incredibly significant, extremely uh, significant for the anti-fascist resistance. In Greece as well, again, because they had the participation and support of the population. In Bulgaria, it's a mixed bag. The population did not live under occupation, and so they were very reluctant to help the partisans, generally speaking. The government also put you know, very punitive measures in place, punishments for anybody who was caught helping the partisans, so you did so at great risk to yourself. So for the most part, the partisans in Bulgaria were an annoying thorn in the side of the government and of the of the Wehrmacht. They, you know, they blew up supply lines. They did targeted assassinations. They basically just wreaked sort of small bits of havoc here and there whenever they could. But they were an important part of what ultimately happens, right? Which is that when as the Red Army is moving westward, when they get to the sort of, you know, north east corner of Bulgaria, there's a, an uprising in Bulgaria Some on, on September 9th, 1944. Some people prefer to call it a coup d'etat. It depends on you know, which side of the political spectrum you're on, what you call this event of September 9th. But um, the key thing is that all of the partisans come down from the mountains at this point and sort of establish, take the first steps in establishing what will become the People's Republic of Bulgaria. Workers, peasants, teachers, defecting officers of King Boris's army, Communist Party members, members of the Farmers' Party, the partisans, fought their guerrilla war for four years. We're listening right now to a US documentary series from the 1970s, The Unknown War. Narrated by Bert Lancaster, the series looked at the experience of the Second World War on the Eastern Front which had been overshadowed by Cold War antagonism between Washington and Moscow. This section discusses the Bulgarian role in the conflict. This is the village of Bataki in the Bulgarian highlands. The Germans shot every male in the village. To this day, the women of Bataki still wear the black kerchiefs of mourning. Hedging his bets, King Boris had never declared war on the Soviet Union. On September 7, 1944, he broke relations with the Nazis and declared war on Germany the next day. He was a little too late. Sending a formal declaration of war to the king, the Soviets rolled into Bulgaria the same day. There was no resistance. The following day, the Soviets held a victory parade in Sofia. Partisans came out of the mountains to celebrate and to claim their inheritance. Russians and Bulgarians joined in a ceremony at the Shipka Pass where the great-grandfathers of the Russian soldiers and the partisans had fought and died to liberate Bulgaria from the Turks and form a new country. You wrote about the story of Frank Thompson, whose brother was the famous historian Edward Thompson. Could you tell us a little bit about his life and death in Bulgaria during the war? Yeah, so the it's a really fascinating set of stories. So Frank Thompson was the son of... a kind of intellectual family in England. And obviously he was the older brother of, of Edward Palmer Thompson, whom we know as E.P. Thompson, great labor historian. And he was a student at Winchester. He was a, a student with the physicist and mathematician 
Freeman Dyson, who just recently passed, and which is somebody I knew personally, and that's how I got interested in the in the story of Frank Thompson, who went off to Oxford. And at Oxford, he met the novelist. She, she wasn't yet a novelist, but the, the woman who would become the novelist, Iris Murdoch. And uh, the story is a really quite interesting one. Uh, he was rather attracted to her and he uh, was flirting with her. And his way of flirting with her in, in sort of the political club was to complain about the politics of the British la- left, the British Labour Party. And at some point, I think Iris Murdoch just sort of turned to him and said, well, why don't you join the Communist Party? And Frank Thompson, from his journals and his letters, we have you know wonderful insights into his thinking. And he sort of runs home and he says, you know, um, I've just met a stunner of a girl, uh, and I'm going to join the communist party for her. Um, and and he and he says, you know, I decided that it would be good for me to sober up before I did so. Uh, but the next day, I you know I read State and Revolution. And I, you know, marched on down and, and, and signed up. And so it's, it's quite an interesting story. Uh, he actually ends up volunteering to fight in World War II two days before the official British declaration of war and before, a year before, he is due to be conscripted. And he has a quite illustrious uh, military career. He ends up in the Special Operations Executive, and that's how he ends up being parachuted into Bulgaria in the in January of, of I believe 1944 to help coordinate supply runs to the partisans and the these partisans as i said are mostly communists i mean almost overwhelmingly they're communists uh, many of them are poor some of them are intellectuals some of them are the children of middle class lawyers and teachers many of them are teachers actually and they are having a hard time of it because the bulgarian government is very repressive against these partisans and the British government is trying to drop supplies to them to, to kind of uh, increase resistance in the Balkans. They, they've been dropping supplies, obviously, and sending um, special operations executive officers are in Greece and Hungary and Yugoslavia. But, uh, but, but the, the ones uh, British, uh, the SOE mission, uh, the last one, Frank Thompson is, is, is there and it's a disaster. They, they march in to, Bulgaria, really against the advice of the Yugoslav partisans that they had coordinated with on the border. And there are all sorts of problems with weather and supply drops and radios not working. You know, it's there, there are a lot of politics in the war. E.P. Thompson himself suggested that uh, Churchill may have been purging the ranks of, of communists. And so that was one of the reasons why Thompson wasn't properly supplied. I mean, there's a lot of speculation, but at the end of the day, there's a, a march into Bulgaria with a partisan band that goes terribly wrong. They're ambushed and Thompson is taken prisoner. He's tortured and interrogated. And at the end, even though under the Geneva Convention, he should have been protected as a uniformed British officer. He's just taken out and summarily executed. And yeah, it's a pretty awful, uh, pretty awful situation. And, you know, this is just months really before the Bulgarians switch sides in the war. And the reason that Frank Thompson is such an interesting character, such an interesting person is partially because he was E.P. Thompson's older brother. And what that meant, I think, was something really important 
because Frank Thompson was an avid letter writer and as well as an avid diarist. And so the young E.P. Thompson, who himself had fought right in the, in, in the Second World War, um, comes into an incredible cache of documents from his brother, letters that he wrote to Iris Murdoch, letters that he wrote to his parents, letters that he wrote to, to E.P., plus all of Frank Thompson's diaries, which were eventually returned to the family. And they put together, I believe in 1947, E.P. Thompson and his mother put together a little collection of writings called There's a Spirit in Europe. It's an out-of-print book, but if anybody, if you can get a copy of it, it's a fascinating, fascinating book because it gives you a sort of day-to-day account of what it was like to be a soldier in World War II. And it also gives you a really beautiful account of what it was like to work with the partisans in Bulgaria during this the late part of the war. And I think it, it had a really profound influence on E.P. Thompson. Um, and he really did spend, I think, the rest of his life grappling with why his brother was shot when he should have been a prisoner of war, kept as a prisoner of war. So so it's a fascinating story. And I think that the, the story of the partisan resistance is something that a lot of people don't really know enough about. And um, I didn't, you know, quite frankly, know. I'd been doing a lot of research in Bulgaria. And as I say in the book, I where I lived in, in Sofia for many years, my metro stop where, um, where I, you know, I got off the metro every day was called Major Thompson. <laughs> and I didn't know who that was until, you know, a rather serendipitous meeting with uh, Freeman Dyson at the Institute for Advanced Study in 2006 when I, I learned the story. So it's, it's, a, it's a really rich and fascinating history. And there have been many, many good books, not only written about the partisan struggles, but also about the British involvement in those struggles with the special operations executive. How was the communist system established in Bulgaria following the war? And what was the significance of two events, both of which took place in 1949, the death of Georgi Dimitrov and the trial of Trico Kostov? Yeah, wow. Okay, so so again, a very complex history. And, and the key thing here, I think, is the background of the Tito-Stalin split, right? So I think Georgi Dimitrov is an extremely important figure. He was the head of the Comintern. He was very famously blamed for the Reichstag fire, and he defended himself and was acquitted in Germany. He became a kind of hero of the international left in the 30s. There was a, I think there was, there's a famous quote about, I think it's in, in, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, 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 there was a quote in the 30s, there is only one brave man in Germany and he's a Bulgarian. The fire which destroyed the Reichstag on February the 27th is providing the most sensational political trial since the Dreyfus case. The following clip comes from a British newsreel reporting on the trial of Dimitrov and his comrades in 1933. Now hear the testimony of the young relatives of two of them. The girl Dimitrova and the boy Kurt Torgler. Four communists are now on trial in danger for their lives in Leipzig. They are accused of burning the Reichstag. One of them is my brother Dimitrov. The other is the father of this boy, Torgler. The other two are Popov and Tanev. All have spent their lives on serving the working people and never have had anything to do with such methods and crimes. 
Well, we have both come here in England to give evidence before an, an inquiry of famous lawyers, and we, and we are glad to have heard today that they have declared their belief that all four are innocent. My father and the three Bulgarian are innocent. So Georgi Dimitrov was this incredible kind of hero of the of the international left who serves as the uh, the le leader of the Comintern after Bulgaria is becomes the People's Republic of Bulgaria after you know the the war is over and the the young king Simeon II he's there's a regency around him basically the monarchy is told to put everything that they want onto a train and they leave the country so they're not killed they are exiled and the People's Republic of, of Bulgaria is established with Georgi Dimitrov as its first prime minister, or, you know, first premier, first leader. And he's a very popular figure, obviously, well-respected internationally, but he's also very close to Tito. And as were many partisans in Bulgaria who were close to the Yugoslav partisans during this period of time. And so when Yugoslavia is expelled from the common turn. It is for the crime, quote unquote, of national deviationism. And that is a very loaded term. What that means is that there was a dream, I think, in the Balkans of something called an independent Balkan federation. And this Balkan Federation would have included Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, and, and possibly Greece, some of northern Greece, if not all of Greece. It's also important here that there's a, the Greek Civil War is also going on in the background. And there are lots of politics about what is happening in the Balkans as Stalin and Churchill and, you know, at this later point, Truman are, are figuring out, you know, carving up their bits and pieces of Europe. and. Georgi Dimitrov dies in very mysterious circumstances. People believe that he is poisoned by Stalin because there is a fear that he is going to follow the path of Tito and try to have a, a communist country that is independent of Moscow, independent of Stalin. So, you know, there's a, a huge kind of struggle for power. And it is in this moment of struggle Uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of Georgi Dimitrov's death, that there are, you know, what are essentially a series of show trials. People who were in any way associated with the Yugoslav party and partisans, which have, by the way, would have been anybody really in, in Frank Thompson's group of partisans that he marched into Bulgaria with, people like Densho, Snipolsky, quite prominent partisan heroes, communists, every single one of them, But communists who are not necessarily willing to kind of lay down at the feet of Moscow and really have a view of a kind of independent, as I said, Balkan, you know, these are countries that had been under Ottoman imperial domination for the better part of 500 years. And so they weren't really keen to join yet another imperial formation. But this ends up with uh, the arrest of and, you know, persecution of many, many of these partisans. And this is what led to the trial and execution of Kostov. Trichov, Kostov, yeah. And 
so there, there's essentially kind of a purge under very suspicious circumstances. And um, Kostov is, is really the victim of this guy, of this purge, you know, as is Kolarov. It's, it's a purge and it's a Stalinist purge. And immediately afterwards, this Stalinist puppet, a guy called Valko Chevenkov, comes into power. And you basically have a kind of four-year reign of what we would think of as kind of Stalinism until Stalin's death uh, and, and eventually the replacement uh, of Chervenkov with a guy called Todor Zhivkov, and who ends up being the leader of the, the Bulgarian Communist Party and the leader of Bulgaria for the next 35 years until the collapse of communism in 1989. Following on from that, first of all, how was Bulgaria affected by the process of destalinization that was inaugurated from the Soviet Union by Nikita Khrushchev in the 1950s after the death of Stalin? And how would you characterize the leadership of Shivkov, who you mentioned there, who, as you said, dominated Bulgarian politics for several decades? How did his leadership style differ from, for example, Romania's leader, Ceausescu? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think... um it's a very different thing. Uh, I have a colleague in Germany, Ulf Bronbauer, who, who talks about Zhivko's rule as a kind of soft socialism. I think there was very much de-Stalinization under Zhivkov. There was an attempt to kind of liberalize uh, policies. I mean, obviously, Zhivkov himself had been a partisan, and he knew many of these men who were persecuted, people like Trajcho Kostov and Vasil Kolarov. And he he took real issue, I think, with the persecution of these men who, you know, their only crime was having associated with the Yugoslav party partisans during the Second World War. So there was this sort of hysteria of of paranoia um, during this era of Stalin's rule and and Chervenkov's rule. But um, he, you know, I think he was a very more or less kind of humble guy. And he did really try to liberalize Bulgaria as much, uh, you know, internally as possible. And I see this very clearly in things like the women's movement, where in 1968, when the women's committee is reorganized, they get something called obstetrian control, which is societal control. Like the, the women's committee actually has the power to take errant enterprises to court or to send complaints in, like he actually does try to create something like civil society. I mean, given the one party nature and centrally of the, of the regime and, and the centrally planned economy, obviously this is still a very rigid political system, but compared to other places, certainly compared to Romania or someplace like Eastern Germany or the Soviet Union, Bulgaria was a much sort of softer regime. Now, that's not saying that it was perfect. Obviously, there were still a lot of problems in Bulgaria and many things, you know, there were many issues. And and, and Zhivkov was in power for a long time. And as he got older, I think he did get a lot more paranoid and a lot more uncomfortable with the way things were running and, and you know, changes in, in leadership in Moscow obviously affected political circumstances in Bulgaria as well. And so there, you know, there was always a, a sort of sense of when, for instance, perestroika happens, to what extent was Bulgaria going to liberalize or whether they thought that this was just another trend in the Soviet Union that would pass and the hardliners would come back in. So it was not a homogenous rule. It changed different periods of time over the 35 years. But, you know, 
he built a lot in, in Bulgaria. You know, if you look at something like life expectancy between, I think, 1945 in Bulgaria, the average life expectancy was 52 years old and it's almost 70 by 1989. So education, industrialization, modernization, all sorts of infrastructure is being built in Bulgaria. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very tragic period of history because of the way communism was established during this sort of Stalin, these Stalinist struggles in the forties and early fifties. But I do think that sort of once it is established, the leadership, and it's not only Zhivkov, but it's the people around Zhivkov, you know, unlike Ceausescu, for instance, in Romania, where, you know, you had a kind of megalomaniacal leadership. Todor Zhivkov was a much more sort of humble guy. He kind of played the goofy peasant leader. And, you know, many people, you know, called him sort of like Uncle Uncle Tosho, you know, like he's your kind of goofy <laughs> older uncle. There was a kind of familiarity to him. And, and, and many people in Bulgaria are quite nostalgic for the communist period, partially because it was not as repressive as other places. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't repressive, because it was. And so I'm always really hesitant to take a stand on these things one way or the other, because I just know if you have any Bulgarian listeners, I'm going to get like furious emails from everybody on all sides of the political spectrum for any little thing I say. I mean, in some ways, I was very hesitant to even do this podcast for that reason. But but I do think that certainly compared to other Eastern Bloc leaders at, the, at a time, comparable leaders, Todorjivkov was not among the worst of them. Let's just put it that way. In 2011, Bulgaria's post-communist authorities found a surprising use for the presidential plane of Todor Zhivkov, as Euronews reported. The plane used by Bulgaria's former communist dictator Todor Zhivkov has been sunk in the waters of the Black Sea. Authorities say the craft will become an artificial reef and refuge for many sea species, and they hope it will become a popular tourist attraction. When the system eventually did fall in the late 1980s, would you say it was primarily driven by events in the rest of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, or was there a strong domestic impulse behind it as well, whether from inside or outside the system? I think that a lot of Bulgarians like to fantasize that there was a, a domestic impulse, but there really wasn't. There was this movement, Eko Glasnost, which was about the pollution of the Danube River. There was a, there was a debate uh, between the Bulgarians and the Romanians because the Romanians were polluting the Danube. And some very high prominent people in the Communist Party, for instance, a woman named um, Sonia Bakish, joined this Eko Glasnost movement. They were very upset by the environmental degradation of Bulgaria. But again, I think it's important to realize that there just wasn't the kind of protest, dissident movement that you had in places like Hungary or Czechoslovakia or Poland. It was just a very different circumstance. I mean, again, you know, you also have to understand that like Yugoslavia was next door. Yugoslavia was a very different kind of socialism. It was called self-managing socialism. It was very open to the West. Yugoslavs could travel. And so Bulgarians often compared themselves to Yugoslavia. And, and because of that, they felt that they lived in a much more repressive system. 
Bulgarians could not travel very easily. And there were many more shortages. They did not have access to these Western goods. And the political culture was much more controlled by the government. You know, the Yugoslavs could get all sorts of Western goods and Western media and, and Western music. And, and in Bulgaria, all of that was sort of being done underground. It was being done, but it was being done underground. But the way that people expressed their dissent in Bulgaria was by, you know, illegally trading records or cassette tapes of Pink Floyd or, you know, heavy metal music. It, it, it did not have the same character of the dissident movements in other countries. And so it, I think it's really important to remember that after Todor Zhivkov is forced into resignation, and it's interesting because when he is forced into resignation, you know, it soon becomes apparent that he actually doesn't have, he's been in charge of this country for 35 years, but he actually doesn't have any private property. <laughs> unlike uh, some of these other leaders, like he was truly honest. I mean, he had access and privileges as the head of state, but he didn't actually, you know, uh, apparently, as far as we know, he didn't have any kind of big hidden accounts or, or, or things that he had transferred into his own name. About a thousand Bulgarians braved rain and snow in a southern Sofia park to cheer the news of the dramatic changes in Czechoslovakia. This AP news report comes from Bulgaria just after the fall of Todor Zhivkov. It clearly looks at Bulgarian politics through the same lens that was applied to the rest of Eastern Europe at the time. Supporters of the newly legalized reform group Eko Glasnost met to discuss their strategies to put pressure on the government. The new communist leadership under Peter Mladenov has already held out an olive branch, promising to pay more attention to the environment. But Iko Glasnost are equally concerned with political issues. Alexander Karakachanov, the movement secretary, made one of a number of speeches explaining some of the issues to be voted on. Among them was a petition calling for the release of all Bulgarian political prisoners. Eko Glasnost have already presented one to Parliament, warning about the dangers of two controversial water projects. And their popular support is obvious. With the hall full to capacity, more than 200 people were left standing outside. The Bulgarian Communist Party immediately changes its name to the Bulgarian Socialist Party. It is a putsch from the inside, so the people that force Zhivkov out of the party are members of his own party. It is from within the ranks of the party that you have this, you know, we use the term democratic revolution. I, I, I hesitate to use that term in, in, in the Bulgarian case because during the first free elect multi-party elections in Bulgaria, the Bulgarian Socialist Party wins, <laughs> right? Um, which means that the people of Bulgaria, you know, are not as fed up with the rule of the communists as they are in other places. Now, and again, it's a, I think it's a symbolic, symbolic vote because they've essentially pushed Zhivkov out, but the people that come into power are the people that were essentially in power below Zhivkov prior to 1989. So not a whole lot really changes in, in Bulgaria. And I think that's reflective of the fact that the Zhivkov regime despite its repressive components, was not as bad as other places. Obviously, Bulgaria was never invaded by the Soviet Union. There were never Russian tanks putting down a domestic uprising the way that there were in um, Hungary or, or Czechoslovakia or the threat of, of, of such intervention in Poland. And so it's a, it's a very different set of 
local domestic political circumstances. Over the last two or three decades, how has Bulgaria addressed and continued to address the communist period? And what relationship would you say the latter-day Bulgarian Socialist Party has with the communist heritage? Very little, (laughs) I would say. I, I mean, I think there are some stalwarts in the party, but for the most part, it's as with so many European socialist parties, it's just become a kind of centrist party. It's been in and out of power. Uh, It has, you know, imposed on Bulgaria the same sorts of austerity, neoliberal kind of policies that all parties in Eastern Europe have been sort of forced to impose on their countries in the last 30 years. I think the big problem in Bulgaria right now, I mean, I, again, I've, I've written many books and many articles about what I call red nostalgia for the communist period in, in places like Bulgaria. Uh, but it's also common in throughout the former socialist world. You have Yugo nostalgia in Yugoslavia, you have nostalgia in former Eastern Germany. So this is a, this is a, a widespread phenomenon, but in Bulgaria, I think the, the biggest, I mean, there've been many Good things, obviously, that came after the end of communism. People could travel, people could buy jeans and get cigarettes and 500 kinds of different shampoo and cheese and all the kinds of consumer bonanza, all the wonderful stuff that capitalism brings that they didn't have before and that they really wanted. I think it's important to highlight that it sucks to live in an economy of constant shortage. Uh, And many people were very angry about that economy of constant shortage. But the problem is that the various governments that have ruled Bulgaria for the last 30 years, all of them in one way or another have been corrupt uh, to a greater or lesser degree. All of the state-owned enterprises, all of the properties that were supposedly you know, the collective wealth of the Bulgarian people in the 90s and the early 2000s were privatized in a horrendously unfair and corrupt way, uh, you know, which created the mafia and a few extremely rich oligarchs and uh, some people who fled the country with lots of resources that that should have been collectively distributed to the citizenry and weren't. I can give you multiple examples of this. My first book, Red Riviera, talks about this process of privatization in the tourism industry. And my second book, Muslim Lives in Eastern Europe talks about this process in the mining, uh, lead zinc mining um, complex in a town called Madan. But the biggest negative, I would say, which is still continuing to this day, is the demographic catastrophe that has struck Bulgaria. It is the fastest shrinking country in the world. Uh, population projections for 2050 are that it will lose an additional 20 to 30% of its population. It has suffered from massive amounts of outmigration and total collapse in fertility rates. And, you know, for a country that has existed, if you, um, you know, for, for the better part of 1300 years, if, if, you know, you go with the Bulgarian historiography, it is tragic to me how difficult life has become in Bulgaria for many people 
and not at all surprising why they leave and why they refuse to have children, or if they do have children, they have them abroad. And so demographers call what's happening in Bulgaria today, 30 years after the collapse of communism, a demographic death spiral. It is very difficult to reverse the situation, a situation like the one that Bulgaria finds itself in today. And in fact, Ivan Krastev, who is a wonderful Bulgarian intellectual, wrote a book uh, called The Light That Failed with his colleague Stephen Holmes. And he's really talking about the failed promises of democracy in Eastern Europe. He's, he himself is Bulgarian. And he does himself admit that the demographic collapse is one of the biggest failures of the transition from socialism to capitalism in the last 30 years, 30 or so years. I mean, I was in Bulgaria very early on in this process. I was in Eastern Europe the summer after the wall fell. And I remember the euphoria and the feeling that, you know, communism was over and people were going to have freedom. And there was this whole possibility of a peace dividend living in a more just world without the Cold War and all of the threat of nuclear war that we all lived under um, in constant fear of during the 80s. And and it's it's sad to see that all of the goodwill and the the, the spirit of those early years that has been squandered in, in the last in the last 30 years. In fact, I don't know if I don't know if I told you this or if we discussed this, but just last week my colleague Mitchell Orenstein and I have published a book called Taking Stock of Shock social consequences of the 1989 revolutions. And that is a book that looks at economic, demographic, public opinion, and ethnographic data for 27 countries over the last 30 years. And we basically try to take a bird's eye view to see whether or not this transition process has been a success or a failure. And what we find not only in Bulgaria, but throughout the region is that it's been wildly successful for some people, probably about a third. And uh, for the other two thirds, it's actually been a really massive catastrophe. Uh, There are many, many people living in the region today who do not have the standard of living that they enjoyed in 1989 or 1991 when communism ended. And that's after 30 years of freedom and democracy and capitalism and free markets and all the promises that those things were supposed to bring. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. As a final question, can I ask you, in recent years, the Buzluzia monument, which Mm -hmm. some people listening might be familiar with, others not perhaps, has developed a kind of cult status as an alternative tourist attraction. How would you say that fits into these wider debates about historical memory, about Bulgarian communism? Yeah, I mean, so this monument is, you know, supposed to um, commemorate Dmitry Blagoev's founding, right, of the of the left party in in Bulgaria. It was built, I think, it was inaugurated in eighty one, and it's a, first of all architecturally, it, you know, it's it's a stunning monument. It looks like a spaceship, and I think many people are fascinated by the kind of futurism of communist architecture there you know there are all these new books that are coming out looking at all of these different monuments all over Yugoslavia all over the place this particular kind of some I call it brutalist some I call it modernist avant-garde futurist there's all sorts of styles associated with these monuments at 70 meters high and 60 meters wide 
Buzlaja looks out across the Balkan mountains. Earlier this year, the BBC Travel Show included a feature on Buzlaja, a rare privilege for a monument to Balkan communism. It's here because this was the birthplace of the Bulgarian socialist movement. This is powerful, powerful architecture. Following the collapse of the regime, the building was abandoned and later shut off to the public as it fell into disrepair. Oh, wow. Here it is. Dora, it's, it's incredible. There's some work to do, obviously, but it's still very impressive. Look at these 50 square meters of mosaics right on top. And I think the thing about the, the monument is that it's just been allowed to fall into disrepair. And there are all these people that are trying to save it. And I think it's sort of become an interesting symbol for trying to save some of the better parts of socialism. I think you see for the first time after 30 years in places like Slovenia and Croatia, you're seeing the emergence of new socialist parties, democratic socialist parties that were kind of unthinkable as recently as five or 10 years ago. There's a, there's a desire, there's a recognition that 30 years of capitalism and democracy have not delivered on their promises. And so there's a, there's a, there's a kind of dream of going back and recapturing some of the good things that occurred under these regimes. So social stability, safety nets, women's rights, workers' rights, all sorts of ideas that can be re-imported to the present. And I think, I think it's really important to, to dream and to, and to understand that just because there's a particular historical failure, particular, and I, I even, you know, I even hesitate to use the word failure because I think that's so loaded. I mean, those experiments with 20th century state communism, state socialism, whatever you want to call it, in the Eastern Bloc, some people call it state capitalism, by the way, they failed, right? Their, their economies crumbled. Their, their political systems just didn't couldn't handle the stress, right? They were too repressive. They too censorious. Uh, the travel restrictions turned out to be impossible. You know, people, people bristled against all of these various incursions into their private lives by the state. But on the other hand, there were these dreams and there were these ideals and there was a real critique of capitalism. And what happens, I think, in many of these countries, and especially I would say in Bulgaria, is that by the late 80s, even the early 80s, the, the generation of people that fought for socialism, that were partisans, that, that, that actually fought to build socialism in Bulgaria, they were, they were no longer in power. And the children of those people, or even the grandchildren of those people, they were frustrated. They wanted skateboards and they wanted jeans and they wanted to travel. They wanted to go to Paris and they wanted to do all of the things that young people do. And they didn't understand that that was going to come with a trade-off, that they were going to have to give up all of you know some of the benefits that they had from socialism, like housing, like good public transportation, education, healthcare, whatever, all the other things that that sort of basic sub, some subsidized food, subsidized beer, right? There were things that were provided for the population, and so what you what you need, what I feel like is emerging today, certainly when I talk to people in this part of the world, 
is a sense of wanting to go back and reclaim some of this energy and optimism that existed in in places like Bulgaria in the late 19th century. The idea that these countries could be independent, that they could forge their way into the future on their own path without the interference of the great powers, and that there was this sort of beautiful scientific socialist ideology out there that would help you find the way that there was a that there was a plan a greater plan and i think that it's it's not just this monument it's many many monuments and many symbols and music and movies and uh all sorts of sort of cultural artifacts of this era that kind of recapture a sort of optimism and a and a future futuristic utopian outlook that gets us out of the morass of you know what people call late stage capitalism. I think it's really important to to understand that there there is a reason why people are gravitating to symbols of the socialist past. It's not just nostalgia, and it's not just kitsch. It's not just ironic, right? Um, I'm going to wear a Che Guevara t shirt. It's really about trying to capture, go back and capture some of the spirit of the, the utopian spirit, the the progressive spirit of these of these earlier generations because because we need it really badly right now we're facing a lot of challenges in the 21st century and i think that we have to um we have to mine the past for all of the political and and ideological tools that we can to repurpose them and reuse them for the present day it's important to keep them in their historical context. And, and that's why in the course of this podcast, I think it's important to do the deep dive into Bulgarian history as much as we do. But I also think it's important to to remember that history is also something that orients us towards the future. And ultimately, we should not be looking back, but we should be looking forward. And we should be looking to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. And, and these symbols, monuments, cultural artifacts, songs, music, you know, the, the international, when people sing that song, it's, it's a, it creates a chain of connection back, but also forward. And I think that's part of why there's been this sort of reemergence of, of uh, interest and sort of a, yeah. it's almost become like a pilgrimage site, right, <laughs> for people. Many thanks to Kristen Godsey for that account of modern Bulgarian history. You can find more of Kristen's writing about the communist experience on the Jacobin website, 